Father God, we thank you for the fact that you have rescued us, that you have apprehended us. Father, remind us of this truth that we are no more loved by anything that we do. It's just because we're in Christ. And Father, I pray that you would help us, though, to understand what Paul is referring to when he says that he might know you. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom into this text. Lord, help us to understand this power of the resurrection, how that plays out in our life every day. That we would be willing to partake in your suffering because we stand with you. Lord, again, thank you that this power of the resurrection resides within us and we can understand, we can know, we can change, we can grow. And I ask that you would help us to stay focused, to learn these truths, to apply these truths so that our lives would truly exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Junior church is dismissed. You'd like to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This is a four-part series. Actually, the fourth part will be given second week of February. Because we're going to be gone, obviously. Look at verse 9, chapter Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. The pursuit of God. This is probably one of the most powerful passages, maybe one of the most familiar to you. For some of you, it might be your favorite passage, or at least one of your favorite passages. Let me just review a couple main thoughts again about the normal Christian life. And I want to emphasize that. This This is considered the normal Christian life. The first major... Truth is found in verse 12, that we, we know that we have been apprehended by the Lord, that He has laid hold of us. That is a key truth, that, that when it's all said and done, I didn't lay hold of Him, He laid hold of us, of me. Again, because that makes Him the master, I'm the servant. He loved me when I was sinful. He loved me when I was running away from Him. That has huge implications on how you, refer, uh, how you see the Lord even today. Uh, many times, again, we get on the performance treadmill. Well, as long as I do the things that He wants me to do, He likes me. And if, if I don't do those things, then He doesn't like me. That type of mentality. Obviously, that is all unbiblical. He loved you even before you re, he, he, that, he, that you received Him. <laughs> He laid hold of me. I was his enemy. He rescued me. So I've been apprehended. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been apprehended. 
That's not to discount the fact that we hear the gospel, we receive the gospel, but the reality is, if you've received the gospel, it's because God opened your eyes to it. If at this very moment you're an unbeliever and you understand the gospel, oh, I see, I'm a sinner and I need Christ's forgiveness, what He did on the cross, you can receive Him right now. Yes, Lord, I believe. But even with all that said, He apprehended you because He opened your eyes. I, was, I gave my testimony to the kids yesterday at camp. Uh, we had a bomb fire last night around 9 o'clock. And the series we've been looking at is Do the Hard Things. It's been an excellent series. It's basically challenging each one, not just teens, but adults as well. You know, are you seeking to do the hard thing for the Lord? Are you seeking to make an impact for Him? But part of it is, you know, your testimony, and they wanted me to share one of the things that I realized is, I mean, just as you think about your testimony, I have been going to a Baptist church and probably heard the gospel Literally, at least a hundred times, up to the point of the when I I went, we went to a camp, heard the gospel another time, and it finally dawned on me that I was a sinner and I needed Christ. Now, did that mean that all those other times I heard the gospel wasn't real? That that the guy was unclear as far as the gospel? No, that I was blinded and I couldn't see it. I was deaf, I couldn't hear it. Then all of a sudden, the Lord opened my eyes, opened my heart, opened my ears. I heard it. And I received him, July 21st, 1975. He apprehended me. The second major point is a believer's righteousness originates with Christ. It is, it is his righteousness that has been imputed to me, a sinner. Therefore, it is complete, and I cannot lose it. That's what verse 9 is. From God by faith. It's Christ's righteousness in him, you know, and... We went through that last week. Very, very important that we see that it is in Him. The righteousness that you have is not because you're getting better and better now. I have more and more righteousness, that type of thinking. When you get saved, (coughs) righteousness is transferred to your account. So I've been apprehended and it's His righteousness. Christ in Christ alone meets every need of the soul. Now this is the point. His work has satisfied God... And he satisfies the one who trusts in him, Ironside said, an old preacher. What he did satisfies God's holiness, God's wrath, because his wrath was poured out on Christ. And as you, as you receive Christ, he becomes your satisfaction, not only before God, but more and more you're satisfied in him. Okay, that's what, this, this, that's what verses 10 and 11 are talking about, that more and more you're satisfied in him. It can be like this, and this is a prayer. O Lord, teach me to know grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation. Lord, teach me this. Teach me that grace precedes it, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul. That not one link of its chain can ever be broken, i.e. grace. It cannot be broken. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, washes me clean, renews my heart, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, (coughs) consecrates my every thought, word, work, teaches me immeasurable love. I mean, that's what grace does. It it just, it like encapsulates you. It protects you. But it's not me doing it. It's not you doing it. It is literally... 
God's grace in your life. It's just like wave after wave. Have you ever been in a really strong storm? And it just pushes you. And uh, I remember one time when we had the cottage up at uh, Plaskai, we were going to go out. It was supposed to be this really nice, you know, had ice cream and go out on the boat and like eat ice cream on the boat. And for some reason, it was very windy. And we didn't realize because when the wind hits, and for the first half a mile out, you don't feel it. But once you get out in the middle, then you really start realizing how wavy it really is. And I remember we were going out there, and my dad and mom happened to be out with us that particular day, and we were going to go to the other side. And by the time we got to the other side, I mean, the waves were like, I mean, for a pontoon boat, that's pretty high, you know. You know and they're like, you know, the engine would go, you know, because it wasn't even in the water half the time. That, that, those waves were just pushing us. Thankfully, we were able to turn the thing around without capsizing and got back to where the, the quieter part was and basically ate our ice cream at home. <laughs> but, you know, when it says, you know, when we're talking about grace, I think of waves like that. It's just, it pushes us. Now, yes, there are responsibilities we have. We're going to be looking at those in a moment. Getting into his word and praying, fellowshipping. I mean, the, the, the disciplines of the Christian life. But when it's all said and done, it's what's there pushing. It's there because it, it secures you. It secures the fact that God loves you. And it secures the fact that, that, as Paul said, he is confident that he will end the process that he started. Okay. I like how one man uh, put it. This was an old Puritan. He wrote this, Without Christ I stand far off, a stranger and outcast. In Christ I draw near and touch his kingly scepter. Without Christ I dare not lift my guilty eyes. In Christ I gaze upon my Father, God, and friend. Without Christ I hide my lips in trembling shame. In Christ I open my mouth in petition and praise. Now think about this. What we have in Christ, what we have if we weren't in Christ. Without Christ, all is wrath and consuming fire. In Christ, all is love and the repose of my soul. Without Christ is gaping hell below and eternal anguish. In Christ, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without Christ, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him... An eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without Christ, all within me is terror and dismay. One of the things I told the kids that drove me to Christ is during 5th, 6th, and 7th grade, I used to be terrified to go to bed at night. Just terrified. Just, I remember sitting at the edge of my bed, just like, you know, Mom, what can, you know, I, I just don't want to go to sleep. What if I die? But in Christ, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. There's no accusation that can be put against me. Without Christ, all things external, uh, all things external call for my condemnation. In Him, they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Nothing can separate. Praise be to you for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that true? We forget how much Christ has done for us. That's why we keep coming back, right? That's why we keep coming back to minister or to feast on his word. Now, you put all that together, and now verse 10 makes sense. That I might know him. See, this is to experientially know Christ. 
Because again, you could immediately say, what do you mean to know Him? I mean, this is Paul speaking. (laughs) I mean, he explained Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He wrote extensively on the Gospel. He wrote Romans. He wrote Galatians. He was miraculously saved, Acts 9, Damascus Road. What does he mean that I might know Him? Again, he didn't say, I want to know more about Christ. He said, I want to know Christ. Now again, that word know can have the implication of um, just facts. By the way, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, it says this, that knowledge, what? Puffs up. So again, we're not talking going in that direction. Paul wanted to know Jesus Christ in a personally an experiential way that would affect his daily life. That's the whole point. I want to know him so intimately that it affects my daily life, that that I am, as it were, just walking with him, sensing his presence, sensing his love, sensing his peace. That, That my love for him would be deep. That I would love him, that I would adore him that I would pursue him. He even talks about pressing on. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at. It's, again, this word know does mean knowledge. You have to have a body of facts. I mean, let's not disregard that part because there's, a, you know, there's certain parts of Christianity that, that seems to always want to go through this phase of saying, well, it, you know, knowledge is not important at all. It's just whatever the experience is. Well, no, it's, it's a body of facts about Christ. The more we understand body of facts about Christ, it, it, it starts to become like the, the foundation. But there's more to it than that. In fact, J. A. Motler said this, We have largely lost the biblical dimension of the word knowledge in our customary use of it. Again, we confine it almost entirely to the contents of the brain. The Bible would not negate that, but neither would it accept it as a complete definition. So again, part of it is you want to know facts about Christ, i.e. you need to get into the book, because this is the where Revelation is, right? person says, well, I, can, you know, I, can, I don't need the Bible. I just need to go out into uh, creation. I can just sense his, you know, his handiwork, and I can know God through that. Uh, that's going to be faulty. No, we want to know facts about Christ. It means I need to get into the book because I need to see what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And the neat thing about the Lord is you see him interwoven throughout both the Old and New Testament through prophecy and and then the accomplishment of prophecy. But the second aspect would be this. It would also add a practical dimension. So when he says, I want to know him, Practical. Nothing is truly known unless it is being practiced in daily life or in some way allowed to control the conduct of the person. So it goes from the body of facts to saying, I want it to affect me. Is that how you look at our Lord? That I might know Him? I want, his, I want the knowledge of Him. I want, I want to have a, such a, a knowledge of Him that it actually affects my daily walk with Him. In other words, when I leave church, when I leave devotions, when I leave fellowshipping with other believers, and I have a better understanding of our Lord, it actually affects how I live. That's what Paul says. Like Job 28, 28 says, God, God said, to depart from evil is understanding. See, in other words, to have true understanding means you're going to depart from evil. It actually affected his, his practical life. 
Or Jesus said, if you love me, what? You keep my commandments. That's obedience. That's actually affecting your daily life. In fact, he says that same concept two other times in the same passage. It actually affected his life. So we have knowledge, or knowledge is facts, that's part of it. It affects your practical life, that's the second part of it. And the third part is, in knowledge between persons, to know is to enter the deepest personal intimacy and contact. That's like the third part. So there's facts, it affects my life, but there's an intimacy. There's an intimacy. Paul wanted to enter into a very, very deep, intimate relationship with Christ like a yearning. The, the closest thing I can come to is marriage. Marriage. You know, in marriage, this is how it ought to be. By the way, when you marry people, this is how they always think it's going to be, but it doesn't always happen this way. You know, the couple stands, you know, and just their eyes are just aglow, and I just love that I'm just so glad, you know, at the ceremony. And they're just focused in on it, and they cannot wait to spend the rest of their lives uh, with each other, right? I mean, I wouldn't even marry a couple if I didn't sense that, right? You know, go get a justice of the peace. I don't want to, you know, if you're not even... But what happens after a while? It can grow cold, right? See, I can say, do you know Sola? Yes, most of you know my wife Sola. And some of you could even say, you know, I know a few probably more particular facts than the rest of you know about Sola. But really, I'm the one that really knows Sola, right? I'm, I am most intimately connected with that lady. Okay. Now, by the way, when I say that, I'm also most concerned about pleasing her. Okay. See, I know what, I know, by the way, the buttons that I can push that can really get her. But I can also, I also know how to protect her. And provide for. Now again, that's just a that's just a human. As Paul says to the Lord, he says, "I want to walk with him. I want to please him." But see, there's a there's a major part in my life that I want to please her. You know, some of the things, and some of it, by the way, she doesn't even realize. Like I'll do certain things, like um, you know, like a cold day like today. If she was here and not at snow camp, you know, I would like most of you men probably do, but hopefully it's driven by a love for your wife. You know, get up and, you know, clean off the car and start it up and make sure the driveway is all set and throw the sand on the driveway. And, and then, you know, all she does is she's like rushing out saying, well, come on, John, we're waiting for you. <laughs> I've been working for that. Yeah. See, that word knowledge has intimacy in it and the idea of pleasing. And I had to ask myself, do I really plead, do I really want to please the Lord? See, a lot of times I walk in holiness because I don't want to be chastened. <laughs> I do want God's blessing on my life. And those aren't wrong. But, but really, that I might know Him? No, I'm doing it specifically to please Him. I am not looking at that, not thinking that way. I'm not acting that way. I'm not speaking that way. I am speaking this way. I am looking in this direction as it is positive and holy and godly. Specifically, direct root, right back, I want to please him. That's a little bit different. See, sometimes we live the Christian life, well, I don't want to be chastened. Uh, I don't want to be spanked by God. I want God's blessing. I want other people to think I'm holy. By the way, we're all sinners. I've sinned this last week, right? But my question is to you, do we 
Walk with the Lord and seek to please Him. Do you have that desire to know Jesus intimately? Do you find that with all the voices that banter for your attention and and worship, that it is Jesus that is the one that you're trying to please? And it's Jesus is the one that actually satisfies you. Um, Do you find that when you are anxious, you rest in Him? That's pleasing Him. That when you desire, you run to Him. That your desire is for Him. That your desires are being replaced from what the world says are, are desires that you should have to what He wants you to have. Is He your source of contentment? You rejoice in Him. I mean, those are the things. Do you yearn to know Christ more? Now again, it, it doesn't secure your salvation anymore. We've already talked about that. Our salvation is secure in Christ. It's found in God. When you get saved, it's complete. But Paul is saying, listen, I, I know I'm saved. I know I'm secure. I know that nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. But I want to know him more. I want to please him more. I want to be more intimately uh, connected with him. My pursuit is to, to walk with him, just like with my wife. I mean, I said I do 20-some years ago. I'm secure in that. I, I mean, we've, we've gone through trials where we looked at each other and said, you know, there's nothing there, but we're not going to consider divorce. So I know my marriage is secure. I never worry about her, you know, running off with some other guy. So, I mean, that's secure. I'm not doing this to, like, keep my security in my marriage, right? Now, do you see the application with the, with the Lord? It's not that. I mean, it's, we're secure. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're secure in Him. But there's this, there's this pursuit, and from a human standpoint, for me towards her, it's like... it's. It's, it's like, no matter how long I've lived with that woman, I'm always learning something more, which is really unbelievable to me. I would have thought by this point I could have said, you know, I got her figured. No, no. And that's an excitement to me. Okay, that is exciting. You know, it's like always something new. But just take that, but so much more with, with the eternal one, Christ himself. And there should be this excitement, you know, to, um, to be in a deeper fellowship relationship with. By the way, I can, I can talk a really good line at, when I'm standing before you on Sunday morning. God knows my heart. God knows, John, do you really, is, is what you're saying, is it really in your heart first? Okay. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it is. I, I mean, I, I want to I be real with you guys, right? It's not like, oh, he must, man, where, where does he come? You know, like, boy, he, you know. no, no, it's a tough. I, this last week, there was actually one particular moment I mean, this whole, there was a, something was going on in my life, and I was like, Lord, I and mean, it was a temptation. And the, and the question that hit me was right here. Lord, do I love you so much that it eliminates the temptation because I want to pursue you? See, that's the question. At the moment of your temptation, even that, do I love him so much that, no, I, his, his intimacy is more important to me than some other intimacy, some other item on the agenda, okay? So this has huge ramifications to your sanctification. Well, how do you gain this experiential knowledge? As I said before, meditation on the Word of God. Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It means abundantly. Let the Word of God have its home in your heart. As you do, like Peter says, you'll desire it. Psalms talks about hearing the Word of God. Psalms 1, again, talks about that word meditating. See, there's a lot of aspects. You study it, you hide it, you guard it, you meditate on it. It takes up residence within you. 
and it does its work. But the idea is that you obey it. So, you know, all of those, all those things, you know, I, the movement is that I'm obeying God. Yes, my heart at times doesn't want to obey God, but as I get into His Word, I learn about Him, it becomes more and more appealing to obey Him because I want to know Him. So that's the first thing. Study and meditate on the Word of God with an attitude of obeying it. I would say another way of gaining experiential knowledge is to be in, be in focused and alert and teachable during times that the Word of God is taught. So again, it's not just your daily devotions or your daily time with God, but when, when, when we gather, when there's home groups, when there's men's groups, that you're, that you're uh, focused, that you're in tune, it's easy to just kind of... Isn't it easy to be in neutral when it comes to listening? Yeah, you know. I mean, some of us do that in marriages at times, right? <clears throat> you know, spouse is talking and... You know, you're watching the, you know, the, you know. That's why a lot of time, the, you know, whoever whoever has the remote control is the power broker, you know, in the room. So we take it away, and so everyone can listen because we don't want to be flicking. Um, but sometimes we don't have a remote here, but some of us are not actually focused. But if you really want to experientially know Christ, get to know His Word, even in those teaching moments. Come, come to worship. I mean, today's worship was excellent. Worship. That's hard. Worship's not easy. If you come in thinking it's easy, you'll walk away saying, being frustrated. No, it's a lot of work because worship says my focus is on another, not on myself. The old sin principle wants to have it on myself. Plus, worship also is a... um, it, It tears into our heart because as I'm worshiping, there are words being said from my mouth that are not necessarily in my heart, and that's conviction. No, Lord, that's what I do want, but sometimes I don't have that. So that's one. And, and I would say this, another way to really experientially know Christ, to know Him, is to, to love His people. To love His people. <laughs> Sacrifice for His people. Serve His people. Use your giftedness for His people, the church. I've told you this before. Uh, a few years ago, someone was telling me, and, and then I asked a few ladies, and they said, that's right. If you want to love a mother, love her children. Would you say that's true? Like if I show love to your kids, that you're, I'm showing love to you in an in in inadvertent way. Is that true? You want to have your kids loved if you have kids? I found that to be true with Sola. Love her. You know how I can love her? Love her children. When I, when I strike out at my children, you know, frustration, it actually I can almost see my wife's... <clears throat> Not towards me like that, just mm, because love my kids. Well, think how much so much more. The Father's love, Christ's love for us. I, I, I actually can learn more about Christ and loving Him as I love you, as I serve you. And we can all do that. Now we want to, as the old verse says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. We've got to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, and it's easy not to, especially in our society with all so many things bantering for our attention, so many options, so many things that um, try to play priority. And we have to say, you know, what is priority? Uh, T.J. Wilkinson was, is teaching. I mean, he, he's actually overseeing the camp. But uh, I guess he's a... 
um, Steve Jobs buff because he seems to bring up him up a lot. Steve Jobs, a guy from um, Apple, right? Right, just died. Want to make sure I got the right name. I guess apparently, though, with him, one of his things that he developed in his life was he only had 12 people around him that he really like devoted his life to, poured his life into. The idea was he couldn't reach everybody. He couldn't touch everybody. He only had his 12. <laughs> and I said, boy, that, that sounds kind of biblical, doesn't it? But, um, but the point is, is this. You, he, he was only focused in, in a very small group. From there, they were supposed to affect the other parts that needed to be affected in the company and things like that. But I thought, you know, when it comes to Jesus Christ, the one, we should start eliminating, negating things that are out of our life to, so that he is priority, so that we are walking with him and growing in intimacy with him. But again, there's a lot of voices out there. There's a lot of options out there. You can keep yourself very, very busy and never find time to spend with Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? And you can walk in and say, boy, you know, studying the Bible seems to be boring and it just seems to have no power in my life. And, you know, hanging around with Christians, they just are irritating to me. I just wish they'd, you know, just, you know, they have enough problems. Well, yeah, but wait a second here. Are you in tune with the one who reveals his word? Are you in tune with the one who loves those people? So Paul says that I might know him. Let's look at the second one. And these are going to go a lot quicker. The second is to live a life of holiness. To live a life of holiness. That I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. The power, the dunamis. We get our word dynamite. Very, very powerful. Christ's resurrection shows God's power, right? In fact, I would say this. That Christ's resurrection is the strong is the strongest power on this earth. Now think about power. Think about power back in uh, Paul's day. There were some powerful things in Paul's day. One was the Roman government. But I would suggest that the Roman government, the world's greatest power at that moment, was only the third greatest power in the world. Again, Rome was powerful. Very, very powerful. Broke the backs of countries. But it was only the third greatest power. Well, you might say, well, is there any another power that was even greater than Rome's power? The power of sin. The power of sin principle in the person's life, right? Remember Paul wrote in Romans 7, for the good that I wish I that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. But I see a different law. This is the sin principle in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he cries out, he says, wretched man that I am. So, so let's take the greatest powers in the world at, at the time of Paul. He had the Roman government, human power. Very, very powerful, but third on the scale of most powerful. Then you had the power of sin. The things I want to do, I don't do. But this is the greatest of all powers. The strongest of all powers is the power of the resurrection. The power that is seen through God. What God did for Christ. What God does for us. 
This is God's greatest display of power. And we find it resident within Christ. If you go to John 10, or you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. John 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. He says, "I Father loves me, and because of that I can lay my life down, I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Now, the greatest power on the earth is the power of God. And it is shown through the resurrection. That's how we know that our gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Because he rose from the dead. And Christ said, and I have it within myself. I can lay my life down and I can resurrect on my own. It's the power of God. And so Paul says, that's, that's the power I want. Well, what do you mean? Well, what, do you, what is he shooting for? Well, he's shooting for holiness. I want to live in such a way that the power of the resurrection that actually raised Christ from the dead, that's going to raise us in the last day, is resident within us. Well, it is resident within us, but sometimes it's not displayed through us. See, we want resurrection power. Because resurrection power not only saves us, it sanctifies us. It makes us holy. That's why in Romans chapter 7, and let me just uh, turn there very quickly. At the end, after he's, you know, woe is me and woe wretched man that I am, he says this, Who will deliver me from the body of this of death? Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from the body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He said, Christ is the one that's going to rescue me. And Christ rescues me on a daily basis. He transforms your life. I love the old story of of the the king of Fiji, one of the, the islands there. Story is told of an English earl who visited the Fiji Islands. Being an infidel, he critically remarked to an elder chief. This is what the guy said. This is what the earl said. You're a great leader, but it's a pity you've been taken in by those foreign missionaries. You're the only the only want excuse me, they only want to get rich through you. No one believes the Bible anymore. People are tired of hearing that old story of Christ dying on the cross for sins of mankind. They know better. I'm sorry that you've been so foolish as to accept their story. So, you know, this, this English guy is just like on and on and on. And the king is just, you know, the king is just listening to him. The old chief's eyes flashed as he answered. See that great rock over there? See the big one over there? On it, we used to smash the heads of our victims. Notice the furnace next to it? In that oven, we used to formally roast the bodies of our enemies. If it hadn't been for the good missionaries and the love of Christ that changed us from cannibals into Christians, you'd never leave this place alive. <laughs> you better thank the Lord for, our gospel, for the gospel, otherwise we'd already be feasting on your flesh. I'm sure that shut him up. <laughs> if it weren't for the Bible... You'd be our supper. See, the Bible does, it does transform us, right? The power of the resurrection. By the way, but unless you've received Christ, unless you've experienced 
His salvation and are experiencing His power, you may be very, very, what we'd call carnal, very sinful in your state. You may be a believer, but you may not be growing much. Sometimes people, Christians, try to imitate Christians without having the power of the resurrection in their life. By the way, unbelievers do too. One of the things this video series, uh, Greg Harris, and Greg Harris has been around for many, many years. He's the father of the boys that write a lot of the books. Um, but he was talking about, I think, he, I think it actually came from Paul David Tripp. Sometimes people try to look like a Christian without the power of the resurrection, the power of Christ actually performing the, the, the process of true fruit. And he called it fruit staplers. You ever heard of that term, fruit staplers? It, he, was, he was making the point that, you know, let's say you're a crab apple tree. And you're in the midst of a whole lot of other trees that are sweet apple trees. And you, you get kind of tired of you know, being the only crab apple tree in the thing, and you're not producing anything anybody wants. So you know what you do? Since you're in the, in the orchard with all these other great apple trees, like Cortland's and Ida Red's and stuff, what you do is one day you kind of go over and pick a few of those apples off the sweet tree. And then you start to staple those fruit onto your branches. So now you have a you staple on a, a Cortland and a Ida Red and a Macintosh and oh you got some more oh, look, let's let me get some over here these yellow ones you know and and you've stapled all these fruit but but the guy is going to come around and say well that's not original with the tree now he was making the point that a lot of times unbelievers are fruit staplers a lot of times kids go to youth group and because they say the right words to their parents and man I'm getting the word of God and they know the words to say to the parents to make them excited. That all of a sudden, you know, they, oh, Johnny is doing so good. But really, it's just fruit that's been stapled. They know the words to say. They know what it looks like. But as he was given an illustration, you know, I think to myself also, sometimes we are fruit staplers as believers. But it plays out a little bit differently. We, we, we look right. We may even say things right. And I'm saying a true believer. But it's not done by God's power. It's just superficial. You'll know it's superficial because when no one else is around, they, those, that fruit just drops because you're trying to please people. See, Paul says, I know I want it to be real. <laughs> I, I want to experience... Now, he's already experienced the power of the resurrection and salvation. So it can't be that. What does he get in? Holiness. Not just salvation, but sanctification. Again, is the fruit that is seen in your life, does it matter whether someone's watching or not? What are you like in the intimate moments, the quiet moments, late at night? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? How do you, how do you, uh, how do you uh, uh, confront your temptations and trials? Do you give in or do you sense God's power giving you uh, hope, giving you victory in those moments? So, to live a life of holiness. Number three, to willingly and obediently suffer along with Christ. That's the third thing. And the fellowship of his suffering. The word fellowship is koinonia. It's partnership. Fellowship. I want a fellowship of his suffering. Again, this does not mean that Paul wished to suffer for human sin. Only Jesus could do that. He's not, he's not talking about the guy that you see during Easter in some of the islands where they're walking down the streets on their knees to purposely suffer, to somehow make some atonement for their sin. 
This is what Paul's saying. He wished to stand with Christ in such a close union with him that when the abuses and persecution that Christ suffered also fell on him, as he knew that they would in this type of a world, right? He could receive them as Jesus did. He could receive them as Jesus did. He wanted to react like Christ when he was was called to suffer. For he knew that the abuse received like this would actually draw him closer to his Lord. So it's not that he wants to purposely suffer to somehow atone for part of his sin. All that was taken care of on the cross. But Lord, when I have to suffer for you, let me suffer like you, who didn't revile, who trusted in God, like Peter talks about. And then he also knew this, though. I think the second part is this, that, and because I suffer with you like that, I will actually be drawn closer to you. Do you realize that we are drawn closer to the Lord when we suffer for him? By the way, suffering is normal. Where is Paul when he's writing Philippians? Where? Prison. So, I mean, he's writing as he's being chained, right? I mean, this is normal stuff. In fact, Philippians, a couple chapters before, 129 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. You've been called not only to believe in him, you've been called, you've been elected, you've been chosen to to believe, but not only that, but to suffer for his namesake. Peter says this, For to you you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. And he's talking about suffering there. that That we would be willing to suffer for him. Just like Christ suffered for us, we'd be willing to take upon that mantle, as it were. Again, sometimes we avoid taking on that mantle. It goes on in in 1 Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So, I mean, that gives us some things. When we suffer, we don't revile. When we suffer, we trust God. See, it's so hard. Isn't that so foreign to us? We don't want to suffer at all. I mean, no, no human, I don't think, wants to suffer unless they're trying to, for the motivation of maybe atoning for their sin, which is totally unbiblical. But Paul says, you know, I want to be in fellowship with him such that when, his, when I have to bear the cross, I'm in fellowship with Christ. Now, you know, the fellowship of his suffering. I want, to, I want to suffer with the Lord, but I want to do it in such a way that I'm in fellowship with him. Sometimes when we suffer for the Lord, that's at the moment when we get out of fellowship with Him because we sin. We strike out. Anger. Hurt. How did this happen to me? Why me? You know? And we become the focus, not the Lord. Peter also says this, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 1 Peter 4.12. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you have to suffer for the Lord. That's just part of the normal Christian life. Keep rejoicing. Why? Because suffering draws us closer to Christ. I like that last part of verse 10. The suffering of the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. One man said this, Paul has in mind a deep partnership and communion with Christ in the suffering. The deepest moments of spiritual fellowship with the living Christ 
are at times of intense suffering. Suffering drives believers to Him. End quote. They were driven to Him. And yet, who wants to suffer? So Paul says, you know, I want to know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection. So if I have to go through things, it's His power, not my own. The fellowship of His suffering. Do you see how these start working together? Because as I go through the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, I become more and more knowing Him. Why? Because we find in Him a faithful friend, a merciful high priest. That's why I can go through the suffering. The Puritans used to say this. Now, this is, this is exact opposite of how you think. Or this is how exact opposite of how I think. The Puritans used to say this about suffering. I am mended by my sickness. Mended? Well, because I start to see perspective. I am enriched by my poverty. And I am strengthened by my weakness. Hmm. Mended by my sickness, enriched by my poverty, strengthened by my weakness. What fools are we then to frown upon our afflictions? These are our best friends. They are are for our profit. (laughs) I say that, and you're going to probably laugh inside your life, and you say, oh, what are you, you know, oh, man. But it's like, I love America, okay? And I'm not saying that as a patriot even. I'm just saying I love this free country. And like, I'm going to Jamaica. Now, you'd say that's like an island paradise. But you know what? There's an angst in me. Like, do I lo- will I lose my passport? When I get there, will I do something? Or maybe I'll say something and get frust- and, the, and the government will be frustrated with it. Now, again, that's a very friendly country. That's not, like if I was telling you I'm going to Albania, you might say. But the point is, is this. What I keep saying to myself is, I preach about suffering. But Lord, when is, the thing, when is it going to happen in my life? When am I going to say something, do something, stand for... Christ, and that means create suffering. I'm not saying it's going to be on a mission trip, but then I say, well, how about an almond? When do, do I back down because it might create some suffering? Because someone might be frustrated with me, or someone might malign me or mock me. See, in other words, in all kinds of contexts, we can stand for Christ, or we may opt out. And, and what, what Paul is saying is, listen, I want to be so close in fellowship with him and sense his uh, power of his resurrection that I can fellowship in his suffering. I am willing to walk with him wherever he goes. And therefore, there's no fear. That's the point. When I'm talking about Jamaica, I'm not saying I'm going to end up in jail. I'm saying there should be no fear in my life. And at times there is. I'm comfortable in America. Everything's okay. Everything is easy. My bills are being paid. I have food on the table. But you know what? As you look around the world, as you look... Is there fear in my life? Why? Why is there fear? Because sometimes I fear the suffering. I fear the change. I fear what might happen, you know. I like the story of Eric Liddell. This is what uh, Alistair Begg. You ever heard of Alistair Begg? The old Scottish guy. Not old. He's probably my age. A little bit older. But anyways, this is what he wrote in his book. All of life can be a sacrifice to God. Now catch that. All of life can be a sacrifice to God. The way in which we live in class, treat our colleagues at work, respect our employers, and serve our spouses. Unless we have learned to see sacrifice to God applied in the humdrum routine of life, we will be unlikely martyrs. Those who are called to make the ultimate sacrifice have usually been well prepared. Let me read that middle Sentence. Unless we have learned to see sacrifice to God applied in the humdrum routine of life, we will be unlikely martyrs. 
See, God is actually preparing you. Where is it that you have to show respect for an employer, love for a spouse? In other words, how is God calling you to sacrifice right now? Okay, that's what we want to see. And many times we have the opportunity and do not avail ourselves of it. We don't want to be put out. Well, I'm, I'm more important, that type of thing. He gives you a story of Eric Liddell. When Liddell went to the 20, 1924 Olympics in Paris, he was thought to have, had, have his best chance at a gold in a 100-meter race. But you know the story. He chose to opt out because that was being done on Sunday, and he wasn't going to run on Sunday. But Liddell was also scheduled to run in the 400-meter race, and that he entered, and that he won. Years after his Olympic victory, he was asked to explain his success. He replied, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is this. I run the first 200 meters as hard as I can. Then for the second 200, with God's help, I run harder, which is not how you run a 400 meter, but that's how he did it. Afterwards, this is what happened. He actually was a missionary to China. He married in 34, and in 36 accepted assignment to do evangelistic work in Saichang. By this time, the Japanese had invaded China. In 1938, Liddell was captured by the Japanese and placed into a concentration camp. Conditions were so severe that by February 21st, 1945, Liddell died of a praying tumor. Yeah, we remember him for what he did as far as the gold, but he was a missionary. That, that was his heart to please God. When Liddell left for China before he died, before he went, this is what he did. He did not know what lay before him, but his life was already marked by a spirit of sacrifice. He began his journey to China after Waverly, leaving Waverly Station in the center of Edinburgh, from an open window on the train, he announced to the crowd that had gathered to see him off, let our motto be, Christ for the world, and the world needs Christ. See, here's a man that had to sacrifice. And many of us would say, man, what a great sacrifice. He didn't run in the hundred and lost the opportunity for a gold. I bet you if you asked Eric right at that point, he'd say that was a small thing. And yet sometimes we are called to sacrifice and we won't even give up the gold. We won't give it up. Oh, no, no. We have to do our responsibilities. We're letting the team down. You know what? Many times we don't let the team down, but we let God down. Let's look at the last thing very quickly. Verse 11, if by any means, if by any means, in other words, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, he is not saying, like if I don't do all these things, I won't be resurrected from the dead. Because he's very clear in Romans that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate the resurrection of the dead. Some have said, well, he's talking about the rapture. Like if he doesn't do all these things, he's not going to participate in the rapture. He's not going to end, end his life and God's going to, you know, no, none of that. What is he talking about? I think this guy, Cooper, I think this guy has it exactly right because there's a play on words here. See, what does Paul mean that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead? I thought every person that's a Christian will attain to the resurrection of the dead. That is true. Every, I believe if you're saved, you will, God is, will finish the, finish the process. He will resurrect you in the last day. This man says this. The word for resurrection in verse 11 differs from the word of resurrection at verse 10 in that it adds a preposition, ek, out. 
which is equivalent to our word out or out of. So he's adding something in verse 11, out. Resurrection, out. The word resurrection literally means to place or stand up. To the Greek mind, living people were standing up. Dead people were lying down. Okay, get this. Living people stand up. Dead people lie down. So making a Greek pun, Paul says, quote, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering that I might give the spiritually dead a preview of eternal life in action as I am standing up among those who are spiritually on their back, spiritually dead. See, I think this is what he's saying. I want to so walk with Christ, so know Christ, so be able to suffer with Christ that I'm going to give a preview, this is evangelism, to the unsaved world, to those who are laying dead. That I might attain, that I might, that I might live the what I'm going to live after the resurrection, but I'm going to do it before death. When the trump sounds and we're called up to heaven, it's perfect, right? No more sin. Paul says this though: I want to live that life even before I die, not perfection, but I want to give the I want to give the watching world because the world is watching the Christian, right? They're watching us. And I want to give them a preview of what the resurrection really looks like. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to be conformed to his death. I want to have the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. I want all those things so that I might attain. I want them to see what the resurrection is going to look like in a living person even before the resurrection happens. Well, can that really happen, John? No, I'm saying he, he's, just give him a preview. Just give a preview. Don't... Are you giving the watching world a preview? Or do they look at you and say, well, they struggle the same way I do, and they do the same sins, and they cuss the same way, and there's nothing different, but he says he goes to church. Paul says, no, no, I want to I wanna give them a preview. I want to actually have the power to live a holy life that they look at me and they say, you are just different. You, are, you handle life differently. And that will so affect the unsaved, laying dead world that they say, but I want to know what you have. So it wasn't just about Paul. It was about all the people around Paul that he would have an effect on. See, that's what's hard sometimes for me. I want to be transparent with you to a certain extent. But on the other hand, I want to make sure you understand, I personally am making great strides in the areas of my own personal struggles. Because the last thing I want you to think is, oh, John's been in this state and he's just continuing. There's no change. There has been huge changes in my life, right? Isn't there should be in yours? I want to share with you the encouragement to say, keep, let's struggle together. But the, but the fact is, is that there should be huge advancements towards holiness and godliness in your life. And those huge advancements should have a major impact on the people you work with, on your friends, and on your family, Right? And they should look at you and say, yeah, I remember when he a long time ago said he got saved, but look at the life that he is living, the testimony, they won't say the word testimony, but the testimony that you are living before our Lord. Why? Because you really know him and the power of his resurrection and willing to suffer for his namesake. Are you willing to do that? Pursue Christ. He's our greatest prize, right? Let's stand as we worship him. If you want to talk about a man who had a great ministry, a powerful life, his, his name is George Whitfield. And uh, George was a preacher both in America and England. Thousands came to Christ because of him. But he also had to suffer 
much. And one of the points of suffering was there would be people that would actually follow him and they would just try to mock him. In fact, after he would get done preaching, they would sometimes even stand up and start preaching just to mock him, deride him, try to discount what he was saying. And one of the men that did that was a, name, a guy named Thorpe. And he was actually part of a, a club called the Hellfire Club, okay, devoted to, to deride the ministry of George Whitfield. The interesting thing is Thorpe one time uh, actually started preaching a message that he, that he had just heard George Whitfield preach. And you can just kind of see him up on stage and, you know, pounding his fist against sin. And, but this is what happened when Thorpe himself, after preaching the message, was so pierced in his own heart that he sat down and was converted on the spot. Why? Because the power is not in the messenger, it's in the message. And even when you deride the gospel in another person that they're trying to share, I always find it interesting that sometimes those who are making the greatest angst against the gospel, trying to destroy it, is, is that, that's the one that God reaches down and apprehends and brings to himself. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the proclamation of the gospel. And again, I trust that we are doing that. Now, sometimes, again, we suffer. But again, the gospel goes forward, and that's what it's all about. Father, again, we thank you for the fact that, uh, for challenging our hearts today. Thank you for the hope of the ultimate transformation that when we have a glorified body. And yet, for now, thank you that we know that we can more intimately know you, that we can experience your own, your power, that we can be transformed, that we can be sanctified. Lord, I pray that we would be so connected, so intimately connected with you, that we're willing to suffer in the humdrum of life, that those times when we can stand for you or walk away, that we stand for you, that we would be marked as a believer. Lord, help us to be able to give a, a glimpse of what the resurrection is going to be because we live so closely, so holy for you. Father, these are high words. It is easy to say amen and then to live a life of not holiness. I pray that you would convict us, that you would lead us, that you would empower us so that we might glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.